Presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. Good morning. This is our eighth uh, session in uh, in our series that I've entitled Frustration, Failure, and Faith. And today we're going to talk about something that uh, that is a problem for all of us. And that is uh, how do we respond when we've been mistreated or misrepresented in some way. And our focal point this time is a character named Mephibosheth. Uh, how many of you have ever even heard of Mephibosheth? Well, maybe, maybe, okay, maybe one or two. Mephibosheth's name means shameful thing. Now, why someone would name a child that? Perhaps he had a different name, and maybe that's a nickname for him, but the Bible doesn't say that. But anyway, we're going to be talking about Mephibosheth today. And just by way of review, as we talk about frustration, remember what the definition of frustration is. Merriam-Webster defines it as a deep chronic sense or state of insecurity and dissatisfaction arising from unresolved problems or unfulfilled needs. If you look online, the online dictionary, it, it uh, defines it this way. The feeling that accompanies, and, and the emphasis on the feeling, the feeling that accompanies an experience of being thwarted in attaining your goals. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Because we all uh, feel terrible uh, any time that we are mistreated or that we are misrepresented. Our main cast of characters today is, first of all, Mephibosheth. He is the son of Jonathan, which would make him the grandson of King Saul, the first king of the United Monarchy. Uh, Saul is, as I mentioned, is the first king of Israel. He's the father of Jonathan. Another character certainly is David, who needs no uh, no introduction in any way, but he is certainly a hero. He's a he's a very good friend of Jonathan, and he would uh, be the second king, uh, turned out to be the second king of Israel. Then there is Jonathan, who is the son of Saul and the father of Mephibosheth. And then the last character that uh, you need to know about is someone named Zeba. And Zeba is a servant of Mephibosheth, which is not surprising that the... Uh, <clears throat> the king's grandson would have uh, would have servants so we're going to be looking at a uh, at the passage from second samuel chapter uh, 9 today you'll notice in the top of your notes that in that little box up there there's a passage from first peter chapter 2 and it has to do with uh, with suffering and mistreatment notice what peter wrote for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. In fact, if you recall, as Jesus was on the cross, and they were nailing Him to the cross, He didn't say, okay guys, you just wait in three days, I'm going to get you. I'm going to come back and I'm going to deal with every one of you. No, as he was nailed to the cross, he cried out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. And But here's the key. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly or righteously. And that's, a, that's of course, a reference to God the Father. 
What we want to look at in 2 Samuel 9 is, uh, I've entitled, Where Grace Meets Us. And then uh, we'll, we'll talk about um, how grace ministers uh, to us. And, uh, and then we'll draw some application uh, as we talk about what grace merits from us. Uh, when we talk about where grace meets us, we just want to talk about some of the background uh, situation, the background conditions that were in Israel at the time and make application to some of that as well before we really get into the meat of Second Samuel chapter 9. Remember that uh, at this point, uh, in Second Samuel, uh, there has a, a war been going on between King Saul and uh, David. There have been a lot of skirmishes. There have a lot of cat and mouse uh, games uh, that that Saul seems to be playing with David, and uh, much of it has to do with uh, with Saul's jealousy. Remember that um, David had come on the scene uh, when he was sent by his father Jesse to uh, bring provisions to. Uh, to his uh, Jesse's older sons who were serving in Saul's army as they were fighting against the Philistines. And remember the Philistines had a champion named Goliath. And when David brought the provisions for his, uh, for his older brothers up to the front lines, uh, he heard this giant Goliath um, as it were blaspheming the God of the Israelites and, uh, and denigrating the Israeli army. And so uh, we know how the story turned out that uh, that David went out and fought fought him and he became a hero in in Israel. And it was not long after that that uh, the women came out when when the army came back in in victory to return to their homes. That the women, many of the women, came out uh, singing and dancing and um, shaking tambourines and doing that sort of thing. And they were singing a song, and the song was, uh, "Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands." And at that point, Saul began to get very suspicious because he had already been told by the prophet Samuel that the kingdom was going to be taken from him and given to someone else. And of course, that someone else we know was David. Uh, Saul did not know that at the time, but now his suspicions his suspicions began to arise, and so there was a great uh, a jealousy that arose on his part as he as he sought to thwart the the plan of God and get rid of David. Remember also there was a covenant that uh, that Jonathan and David uh, had made with one another. In 1 Samuel chapter 23, and I put this in your notes, uh, remember that, that this friendship between Jonathan, the son of King Saul, and David, who Saul felt like was his nemesis, uh, there was a friendship that had developed uh, at the time of the defeat, David's defeat of Goliath. And... Uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 20, uh, there's a conversation that goes on between Jonathan and David. And notice what uh, Jonathan says. And he says, And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. It, it was apparent apparently to Jonathan that David was going to be the next king, that Jonathan, the who's the eldest son of Saul and the heir apparent, would not be the king, and he recognized that, and he was okay with that because of his great love that he had for uh, for David, and uh, and just said, look, you know, one of the one of the things that kings do when they take power is they tend to get rid of any kind of uh, potential problem around them, anyone who might lay claim. To the throne, and so the covenant that Jonathan was making with David here was: when you assume the throne, please don't kill all of my family and get rid of them. And 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 certainly David had no intention of doing that. And then you see a similar thing 
in 1 Samuel chapter 23, and this is just prior to the time that uh, Jonathan would be killed in battle. It says, David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life, and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. Notice, Jonathan was an encourager for David. And he said to him, You, David, you shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. In other words, I'm going to be your right-hand man. I'll be your prime minister. I'll be on your uh, on, on your privy council, as it were. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. But of course, that was not to be. Jonathan would die in battle uh, against the Philistines along with his father and uh and all of his brothers with the exception of uh, of one and uh we see that in first samuel chapter 31 uh It says, Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. So Saul and all of his sons, with the exception of one, were killed at Mount Gilboa that day. Saul's son, whose name Ishbosheth was not present at the time. In fact, he would later be set up as a puppet king uh, just across the Jordan River, uh, east of the Jordan River in, uh, in that land over there. But then we're introduced in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, to this uh, character that we really want to look at today. Notice it says that... Uh, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. So that's when the news came that that, uh, Saul and his uh, son Jonathan, that is uh, Mephibosheth's dad, had been killed in battle by the Philistines. Here's what happened. It says, When that news came, his nurse took him up, and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell, that is Mephibosheth fell, and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. So Saul had been uh, chasing uh, David in the south. Remember what what had happened was that, uh, again, they'd been playing this cat and mouse game where Saul was just spending all his time, instead of really fighting as he should have against the Philistines and, and looking after his country, he was so jealous of David that he just uh, chased after David a lot. Well, one of the things that David had done was to get away from Saul was to move down way down to the south. And when he did that, Saul and his army uh, went after David in the south and it created a huge power vacuum in the north. That's up where Mount Gilboa was. And so the Philistines sought to move into that area while the, while the Hebrew army was all down in the south. And that's what opened the way. Now when, when of course when Saul heard that the Philistine army had moved north then he turned his army around and abandoned what he was doing at least for the moment with David and uh, and went up north, and of course he was defeated and uh, killed by by the Philistines. But we're uh, we're introduced to Mephibosheth at this point. Uh, David was uh, was anointed king eventually after the death of. Uh, of Saul, there was a civil war that that went on for a number of years. Uh, David first became was first crowned king in uh, Hebron, down in the south, uh, and he was king there for about seven or seven and a half years. And then at the end of that time, when Ishbosheth uh, was killed. Uh, then what happened was that the whole of Israel sought to claim David as their king and David moved up to Jerusalem and Jerusalem became the political capital and uh, and eventually would become uh, the uh, religious center as well when they moved the Ark of the Covenant uh, uh, to, that, uh, to that point. 
So uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9 tells us a little bit about the condition of Mephibosheth because really if you think about it it's very analogous to the condition of, uh, of an unsaved person. It's the condition that you and I were in prior to the time that the Lord Jesus uh, came into our lives and changed us. Uh, in verses uh, 3 through 5 we're going to see that he was living outside the land. Uh, he was alienated. In verses 6 and 7, we'll see that he was afraid. Uh, that's our tendency. We're, we're, we think God is going to uh, bash us over the head, or if we really uh, commit ourselves to Him, then He's going to want to send us to China, and we're not going to want to go to China, so we're afraid of things like that. And, uh, and he, we'll see that also that uh, uh, Mephibosheth was very antagonistic. Now, that was a defense mechanism on his part. That, that's something that fear very often produces. We'll see that in verse 8. But let's just look at some of these verses uh, that, shows the, uh, that shows the analogy, as it were, that... Uh, just as Mephibosheth was alienated, uh, notice what it says about our condition apart from Christ in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. It says, Remember that at that time, that is when we were unbelievers, at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world, alienated. That's exactly the way Mephibosheth was. In fact, let's just uh, let's just read through some of this right now. Second uh, Samuel chapter nine. It says, "And David said, now this is remember at this point in Second in Samuel. Remember that at this time." Uh, Jonathan has been killed and so has uh, Saul and David now has finally been uh, has become king over all of Israel and for at least for a moment uh, there's a sort of a peaceful time uh, it would not last but uh, but at least for the moment it's that way and now he wants to do something good I guess he's probably thinking about the covenant that he made with Jonathan uh, is there is there anybody that he can uh, that he can do good for uh, in for Jonathan's sake. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Notice, it, it isn't show him kindness because he deserves it. Show him kindness because of his, uh, uh, because he's merited it in some way because uh, he's the, the would be the grandson or the great grandson of the first king no the reason that I want to show him kindness is for Jonathan's sake why does God show us kindness is it because we deserved it is it because we've earned it in some way of course not the only reason that God is merciful and gracious to us is for Jesus sake is because of what Christ Jesus has done for us on the cross. Because it pleased God to be kind to us, but not for our sake, but for Jesus' sake. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? I want to be sure I'm talking to the right person. And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. The king said to him, well, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodibar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodibar. The word Lodibar means desolate place. So, we talked about the fact that 
that Mephibosheth's condition is analogous to what we were before we came to Christ. And here, and we talked about the term alienated. Here is Mephibosheth who is living outside the land. He is so afraid that uh, that David is going to get rid of him and anybody else related to uh, Saul and Jonathan. Uh, he's apparently unaware of this covenant relationship that David had had with Jonathan. And so he is, uh, Mephibosheth is not even living in the land. He's living outside the land. He is alienated. And he is, here is, here is a man whose name means shameful thing. Here is the shameful thing living in a desolate place. Hey, that's us before we come to know Christ. We are shameful things living in a desolate place. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear. Isn't that amazing? Don't fear. He knew Mephibosheth was afraid. Mephibosheth just knew he was going to have his head lopped off when he, when he came before this, uh, before this new king. And see, that's, that's our condition before we come to know Christ. Afraid. Notice what it says in that left-hand column down near the, near the bottom from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Notice, you weren't sin sick. You were dead. What kind of response do you get from a dead person? You get no response. God has to bring us to life. And that's what we see here. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. We were like zombies. We were still walking around, but inside, dead. Gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. We knew the wrath of God was going was was after us. We we knew that eventually there's going to be a payday, and that makes us afraid. That's that's the way Mephibosheth was. David said to him, "Do not fear, for I will show you kindness." Notice, not because you deserve it, not because I feel sorry for you, because you're so scared right now. I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And you shall eat at my table always. The term always is used three times in this passage. Four times it said you will eat at my table. He brought us to his banqueting table and his banner over us is love, the Scriptures say. And notice Mephibosheth's response. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Notice how he, he is humble before the king. He doesn't say, Well, it's about time. I've been living in a desolate place outside the land. Look at my name. I've just been hung with this terrible moniker for all of these years. And it's about time somebody recognized that uh, that I need to be a little bit better. No, that was not his attitude at all. What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Remember the... Uh, Gentiles referred to as were referred to as dogs, and a dead dog was about as low as you could go. And then the king, and then the king. Uh, well, let's let's look at one other thing again in the uh, left-hand column of your notes at uh, very at the very bottom, the passage from Romans chapter eight, and it shows how. Uh, not only had Mephibosheth been alienated and he was afraid, but because of his fear, he was antagonistic. And uh, he was antagonistic to, to start with. That's why he was living outside the land. And when he realized that 
David was not going to do him harm, but instead was going to do him good, then his whole attitude changed. It's just like when God breathes the breath of life into our dead souls. We become different people. We are regenerated. We are born again. But that passage from Romans 8 says, the sinful mind is hostile to God. See, that's the way Mephibosheth was toward David. He was hostile toward him. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Notice, our response to God is not simply one of unwillingness, but it is one of inability. We can't do anything. And that, and that goes back again to that... Uh, passage that we read a little bit earlier uh, from Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, you were dead in trespasses and sins. See, some people describe the the unsaved person as uh, like a sick person and they're lying in the bed somewhere just dying of some some illness. And uh, and what what the Lord does is He comes in and He's got the medicine and He puts the medicine on the bedside table, and then He tells this sick patient, He says, "Okay, now it's up to you. You've got to reach out and take this medicine. You've got to get the medicine and you've got to get the cap off the bottle, and you've got to take the medicine. And when you do that, everything's going to be fine." But see, the whole problem with that analogy is it well. Patently, it's not true because we're not sin sick. The Bible says we are dead in trespasses and sins. That person lying on the bed can't reach out to the bedside table and take a, a bottle and get the cap off and take something because this person is dead. And if they were alive, they wouldn't, they wouldn't trust the doctor in the first place, the one who wrote the prescription because it says we're hostile toward God. See, what, what, a, what a dead person needs is not faith. What a dead person needs is life. And that's what, just like, think about it, just like in the Garden of Eden, when uh, God created man and He put all these elements from the earth together and created the man. And here's the man, fully formed and apparently lying there on the, on the ground. And yet... He's not moving around. And so what does God do? Is it where God leans over and breathes into him the breath of life? And man became a living soul. Well, you see, you've got the same thing going on spiritually. That when we come into this world, we are dead spiritually. Because we've inherited that those that so-called spiritual DNA from our ancestor um, Adam and uh, and we're coming to this world dead in trespasses and sins and as a result of that what we need is life and what does God do when he brings us to himself the first thing he does is he breathes into us that life and we become alive and all of a sudden our eyes are able to see Jesus for who He is and we can hear the truth of the Gospel. We've heard the words many times, but they've never meant anything to us. And we hear the truth of the Gospel. We see Jesus for who He is. We see ourselves for the sinners that we are and we cry, Oh God, have mercy on me. I believe what You've done for me in the person of Your Son, the Lord Jesus. I believe that He died for me. I believe that He his death was was totally, fully paid for my sins. And you were so pleased with that and satisfied with that that you raised Him from the dead. See, that's faith. But you've got to have life before you can have faith. Notice verse 9 of 2 Samuel chapter 9. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. 
Now Zeba had 15 sons and 20 servants. That, so here's um, Mephibosheth's servant who also had servants. Then Zeba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Zeba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. There's the story of who he is. Now that's just the beginning of the story really. Because what we've seen in, uh, in, in reading through that is we have seen where grace meets us. Where grace meets us. The shameful thing living in the desolate place. And it was not he who sought the king, but the king sought him. He was antagonistic. He was afraid. He was alienated. But in spite of all that, the king sought him. The king brought him to Jerusalem. The king made every arrangement for him. And the king sat him at the king's table where he would always eat. Now, what should be our response to that? Notice uh, I put a little note there on the second page of your notes right at the top that there was a, there was a coup attempt by David's son Absalom. And we don't need to get into why that occurred. Just know that it did. But what we want to talk about now is, uh, is how... Um, is how grace ministers to us, and then we want to talk about how um, what grace merits from us. Uh, and much of this I've already talked about. Uh, notice that uh, again, the king is the one who did the initiating. He sought Mephibosheth. He brought Mephibosheth to himself. And remember what Jesus said in John chapter six, verse forty-four: "No one can come to me." unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Now, some, some people look at that word draw and say, well, that's kind of like a wooing. No, that word draw in the book of James uh, is translated by a different word, and it's the word drag. It says, isn't it the rich who drag you into court? says in the book of James. That's the same <clears throat> same word that's used here. You see, God sometimes drags us along. And that's that's pretty much the way uh King David's uh King David did with Mephibosheth. Notice there's a there's a requirement of reconciliation, and that was at the king's insistence. Uh, Romans chapter three: None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Unless God sought us, we'd never seek for Him. And again, Jesus in John chapter six said, "All that the Father gives me will come to me." Notice, if the Father has written your name in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world, you're going to come. Now, I don't know when you'll come, but you'll come. It may be early. It may be in the middle of your life. You, you, may, you may come when you're, you know, before you're a teenager. You may come in your 20s or 30s, or you may come on your deathbed. But let me tell you, if God has got your name, written in His book, you will come. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And see, we don't know who those people are. Think about those, those two uh, criminals who were crucified along with Jesus, one on either side. And both of them were just cursing Jesus and cursing everybody around and cursing each other. It was a miserable time. They knew they were going to die miserable deaths. And so it was just a good time to put a dog cussing on everybody, including Jesus who was hanging in between. And you would look, you would, if you had been there, you would have looked up and you said, well, you know, I've been following what Jesus does and He doesn't deserve any of this, but those two guys, I mean, you can just look at them and tell what guilty, 
terrible people they are. And I mean, they were convicted of crimes of thievery. Jesus went through a kangaroo court. But these guys, I mean, they really are guilty. And so they're just going to blow hell wide open, I bet you. And then all of a sudden, one of those guys hanging next to Jesus stops cursing. And he looks at Jesus and he says, When you come into your kingdom, remember me. And Jesus said, Today you'll be with me in paradise. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Today you'll be with me in paradise. So here was one of God's elect. One whose name had been written in the book of Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. And it looks like we didn't know that. The people standing at the foot of the cross had no clue. Just here's, here's, a, here's another person who's about to go to hell. But all that the Father gives will come. Some may come early. Some may come in the middle of the life. Some may come right before they leave this life. But they will come. And the one who does, he goes on to say in John 6.37, Whoever comes to me, I will never, never, never cast out. And what are the results of that reconciliation as we saw? Well, an acceptance by the king. And again, look at that passage from Ephesians chapter 1. God chose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Before God ever said, let there be light. God had already chosen His own. Those upon whom He would set His affection. Those for whom Christ Jesus would die. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before Him. And Notice, the, the purpose is that you and I would be holy and without blame. That is, that we would bring glory to God having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. See, notice the reason God did this was not because we deserved it, not because He felt sorry for us, not because we earned it, but just because it pleased Him to do so. And what would it accomplish in the final analysis? To the praise of the glory of His grace. This would bring Him glory by which He made us accepted in the blood. Notice that made us. In the English language, that's in the passive voice. Well, what is the passive voice? That means that the subject is being acted upon. The subject is not doing the acting. The subject is being acted upon. He made us accepted in the beloved. And then there's an abundance that came from the king. We saw that as we read through it. From barrenness, from living in a desolate place, to fruitfulness. Ephesians 1.11 In Him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. And then praise be to God He had access to the king. Remember how many times? Four times he sat at the king's table. That's where the king ate. So he's, he was in the king's presence all the time. Ephesians 2.18 For through Him, for through Christ, we both, and the both there refer to believing Jews and believing Gentiles, we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. And then here is a great passage from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 2.11 says that He is not ashamed to call us brothers. Isn't it amazing that in spite of Mephibosheth's continuing disability, he was still lame in both feet. He had to have somebody help him get around. The king was not ashamed to have him around with that disability. And God is not, the Lord Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. Well, now back to what I said originally as we 
uh, began to talk about this. There's, there's, after all this occurs, years pass, there's a coup attempt by Absalom uh, that takes place. And as a result of that, David and his loyal followers have to flee from the capital city, Jerusalem. Um, at least for, they have to flee for a short time anyway. And in Second Samuel 16, we pick up the story. It says, When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, Why have you brought these? Ziba answered, Well, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. In other words, you're having to run for your life and your loyal followers, and I'm seeking to minister to you. Now, this is Ziba who's doing this talking. And the king said, Well, where is your master's son? Now, who's he talking about? He's talking about Mephibosheth. That's right. Where is your master's son? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem. For he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father, or that is, of my grandfather. And then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belong to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. Now the question is, was Mephibosheth really unfaithful? Or was because of his disability and his his inability to get out of town along with the king if somebody didn't help him, is Zeba lying about Mephibosheth and Zeba trying to feather his own nest. And notice David has done something. Of course, we have to admit, David's under a tremendous amount of stress right now. He's under stress because uh, the heir apparent is trying to take his life from him, that is Absalom. But David makes an impetuous and ultimately, we'll see, a very unwise decision. And that is, okay, I'm taking everything that belonged to Mephibosheth and now I'm giving it to you because at least you've come out here to minister to us and it sounds like from what you said that Mephibosheth is, uh, is going to be in Absalom's camp anyway. Now, David didn't have anything to substantiate that. He just made that decision, and it was an unwise decision. Uh, and probably there's an application that we draw from that, and that is we, we need to have a, uh, a few more facts before we start making decisions. Now, you can, ne- you can never have all the facts. You just you can't do that. But you need to get a whole lot of facts, and you need to do a little checking around and substantiate things, especially if you're making this kind of decision that's going to have such a tremendous impact on somebody else's life. Now, again, to try to shorten the story a little bit, the coup attempt fails, Absalom is killed, and uh, of course David is very upset over that, but the civil war... uh, turned out to not last very long. It was, it was very brief. And uh, it, as soon as Absalom was killed, essentially the civil war was over. And it was time to bring the king back. And there was a little bit of uh, trepidation on the part of, of some of the citizens about, uh, about David being king again. But anyway, we pick up the story in 2 Samuel 19 as, as, uh, as David makes his way back to Jerusalem to become king once more. <clears throat> Verse 11, And King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar the priest, Say to the elders of Judah, Why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, Return, both you and all your servants. That is, come on back, David. Come on back to Jerusalem. 
So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king. Gilgal is a little settlement, a little city, right down at the at the edge of the Jordan River, on the uh, on the western side of the Jordan, same same side that Jerusalem's on. It said the, the Jordan uh, Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. That is, they assembled at Gilgal and then they would cross over and uh, bring the king back across the Jordan and eventually up to his home uh, back in Jerusalem. And uh, and the uh, the historian here tells us a lot of the folks who came out to meet uh, David and how they ministered to David and encouraged David. But the point that we want to look at is in begins at verse twenty four. It says, "And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet nor trimmed his beard." And remember, uh, the condition of your beard was a big deal among these people. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day uh, he came back in safety. So that tells us either Mephibosheth was very unsanitary, or the more likely story is that he was in a state of mourning during all of this time. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? In other words, when I had to leave because my own son's after me and the loyalists were going with me, why weren't you there among them? And he answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. Now, who's his servant? Ziba, that's right. My servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant's lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king, but my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house that is the house of Saul, Jonathan. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? I, have, I, I don't have any rights, Mephibosheth is saying. And the king said to him, now again, uh, this is not one of David's high points in his life, but it says, And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. So notice, Mephibosheth gets shafted again. He got shafted in the first decision. Everything I'm going to give to Ziba. Everything belonged to you, Mephibosheth, I'm going to give to Ziba. And then he finds out, that, well, it wasn't exactly like he said, well... I'm not going to take it back and give it back to Mephibosheth. Look, the two of you can just divide it. So he gets shafted again. This is not a high point in David's life. We understand he's under a lot of duress right now. And he particularly, uh, and mostly not because of the civil war, but because of the death of his son Absalom. He just wants to get back to Jerusalem. And again, this says a lot about decision-making during times of stress. But the point that I want you to see, the point that I want us all to see, is verse 30. Even though Mephibosheth this time gets shafted by the king, and in this sense, God doesn't shaft us, obviously. He blesses us. But notice in the face of getting shafted, what Mephibosheth does because this really is the epitome of what grace merits from us because God has been so gracious to us to bring us to life from death and to take our feet out of the miry clay and set them on a solid rock to put a new song in our mouth, to place His Spirit within us, for His Son to every day intercede for us at the right hand of the Father, for Him to guarantee that we have an inheritance with Him and that we'll be with Him for all eternity. What, what kind of response to us, I'm sorry, what kind of response from us does that merit? Verse 30, And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all. 
since my Lord has come home safely. Let him take it on. I, King David, I don't care about the stuff. I just care about you. I'm just glad that you're home safe and sound. See, our, our King today is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And one day He will return. And when He returns, that should be our attitude. You know, Lord, none of this stuff matters. What matters is that You are restoring Your entire kingdom, that you, everything belongs to You, that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You are, I am safe in Your presence and you are safely home. The point is, is that when you have the king, and Mephibosheth had the king, when you have the king, you have everything. You would get to eat at the table. You would get to, you would get to partake in all of the things that the king does. We are joint heirs, the Scriptures say, with the Lord Jesus Christ. Heirs together of the grace of God. Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. So, as we read through that, did you, did you, you notice there's a, there's a great deal of rejoicing as David returns. But then there's the response of Mephibosheth. First of all, he was longing for the king during that time that the king was absent. Is that the way we are? As, as Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, waiting for the Father to say, okay, now it's time to go back for the second time. Are we looking forward to that? Are we, are we longing for the return of the king? Mephibosheth was. And his loyalty to the king during all of that time, he was not interested in in anything else. His mind was just strictly occupied with the king to the point that he humbled himself in so many ways as we saw. And then that last thing that he says demonstrates his love for the king. Let him take it all. I don't care about the stuff. Remember Asaph's comment in Psalm 73 when uh, the, the psalm starts off where uh, Asaph is talking about the fact that he's being shafted. Well, I just don't understand it. The, 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 you know, the bad guys get the gold, gold and I get the shaft. And it just goes on and on about how they've got it made and how his life's miserable. And he gets to the point in Psalm 73 where he says, I've kept my hands pure for nothing. And all of a sudden we see what his motives were. Well, the reason you've been doing the right thing is to try to finagle stuff out of God. That's not grace. That's trying to manipulate God. But then he says, and this was all troublesome in my sight until I came into the temple. That is, until I came, we would say, until I came into the presence of Jesus. And then I realized that, you know, the... the the success of the wicked is very short term. And I will always be in your presence, Lord, that you take me by my right hand and that you hold me and you won't let me get away. And then finally, Asaph says, and besides you, I desire nothing on this earth. Besides you, I desire nothing. Because when you've got the king, you've got it all. And Mephibosheth recognized that. Well, it's, uh, we need to begin to draw it to a conclusion, don't we? I'm sorry. Uh, so there's application by certainly by analogy here. Mephibosheth was helpless because of his fall. He was dead in trespasses and sins. He could not help himself. The king had to come to his rescue. Mephibosheth did nothing to merit the favor of the king. He didn't seek the king. The king sought him. And Mephibosheth was brought from a place of dishonor to a place of honor. And he was seated at the king's table. That's the application by analogy. But what about the application in reality? Mephibosheth was dismayed by the absence of the king and longed for his presence. Do we truly long for Christ's presence in our lives? Mephibosheth suffered unjust treatment at the hands of his servant 
and at the hands of His sovereign. Now, we don't have to worry about being treated unjustly by God, but in this case, Mephibosheth was treated unjustly not only by his servant, but by his sovereign as well. There were false accusations. There was an unjust judgment that left to led to the loss of everything material that Mephibosheth had. And yet, Mephibosheth rejoiced at the return and the presence of the king. When things go wrong for us, do we, confident of the grace of God, rejoice, find joy in Christ's presence? I I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. I can do all things through Him who strengthened me, Paul would write many years later. The thing that very often we miss out when we when we read this is that David's second decision, you two split things, was really a political decision because Ziba was a Benjamite. Jerusalem was located in the area of land that belonged to Benjamin and David really needed the Benjamites support in order for this thing to really work and for them to be able to get over the civil war. So in spite of the fact that David made a political decision that cost Mephibosheth a lot, Mephibosheth still rejoiced in the presence of his king when things go wrong for us. Are we confident of God's grace? Do we rejoice in Christ's presence? And then thirdly, the Bible warns us not to take God's grace for granted, but rather to examine ourselves. 2 Corinthians 13.5 Examine yourselves. Not examine each other, but examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Don't you realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. Now, what are the tests? Well, if you read 1 John, you discover that there are three basic tests whereby we don't test other people, we test ourselves. First of all, there's the doctrinal test. Do I believe what the Bible says about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ? That Jesus is God in human flesh and that His death on the cross is a substitutionary sacrifice for my sin. Do I believe that? Secondly, there's the obedience test. Is the tenor of my life one of seeking to please God? Not am I walking perfectly and sinlessly, but is the tenor of my life in general? You know, I may take a step back every once in a while, but when I take the step back, do I take two steps forward? At least I'm making progress. Is the tenor of my life one of seeking to please God? Not to gain His merit, not to earn brownie points from Jesus, but to serve Him not on the basis of it's just my duty to do so, but, but out of delight and devotion for what He's done for me. And then thirdly, the social test John talks about in 1 John. Do I show my love for others by seeking to minister to them? Not by manipulating them, not by doing whatever I can to get what I need out of them, because if I'm doing that, then that just proves the fact that I'm considering them my source when God is really my source. If God is my source, I don't need to manipulate people. If God is my source, I can put away the manipulation and I can minister to folks. Because God's going to supply all my needs in Christ. Those are all objective tests. But then there is a subjective test as well when we examine ourselves. And that is the presence of the Holy Spirit within me. In Romans chapter 8, verse 16, it says, The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. That thing that we can't quite put our finger on. It's deep inside of us. It's not necessarily a feeling, but there's this testimony this that's there that rings true along with the Scriptures that when I do examine myself, when I look at my life, and I say, is do I really believe that Jesus is God's Son, that He is, that he is God in human flesh? that He died a substitutionary sacrificial death for me. And when I answer in the affirmative, there's something inside me that says, yes, that's right.
that's right. And when I ask myself, is the, is the tenor of my life one of obedience? And I think of all those times that I failed the Lord. And yet there's something inside me that says, yes, you, Bradshaw, you've got a long way to go. You certainly are not perfect. You, you're a long way from getting there. But you're making progress. Is the Spirit of God speaking to us within that? Now, not audibly, but just in harmony with what the Scriptures say. And do I show my love for others by seeking to minister to other people? Recognizing that I'm not trying to make any kind of earn any sort of merit with the Lord for what I do. But recognize because I can't. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. But because God has already supplied all my needs in Christ and will supply my needs in Christ, that frees me up to minister to other people to seek to help them. And inside, do I sense that that's pleasing to the Lord, that there's this testimony within. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Yes, these all things, all of these things point to the fact that that's true. But be careful now, see. Some people want to just focus just on the subjective. Well, it, it seems to me I feel so and so. Well, you may feel that way, but what do the Scriptures say? We need to look at the objective tests as well as the subjective test. Mephibosheth, the shameful thing, living in a place of desolation, was brought from dishonor to honor. Not because of his own willingness, not because of his own desire, but because it pleased the king to bring him there. And the king provided everything he needed. Praise the Lord, King Jesus still does the same thing today. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. Are we trusting Him? Let's pray. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax-deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.